The sermon text for today is from 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. The text again is 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. The new birth by the Spirit through the Word. Faith by that same Word and Spirit. And love for you and for your people by that same Word and that same Spirit. These three things are huge. In fact, in a sense, they're everything. So as I attempt to render them in their biblical context and proportions, I pray that you would come and help me. I am eager to meet you in this pulpit. I am eager to worship over this word. I love this word and the Jesus and the Father and the Spirit that I see in it. And I am eager for others to share in that love and that worship. So draw near now in these rooms where we are gathered to hear this message and grant that there would be an unusual attentiveness granted by the Spirit and a deep understanding and a strong affection and a powerful change where it's needed. Oh, Lord God, build your people and make us a blessing to this world, which is so needy and a glory to Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. One of my aims now is to show that our ability to love God and to love people imperfectly is rooted in and based on our assurance that in Christ we love them already perfectly. In other words, I want you to see for yourselves, as I show it to you in this text, I want you to see for yourselves, even when you fail to love as you ought, Christ's perfection stands before God for you as a perfect lover of people and a perfect lover of God advocating on your behalf in light of His never having failed where you did. I want you to see that faith in Christ, not love for people, is the way to enjoy union with Christ 
Therefore, faith comes first, gives rise to love of people, and they're different from each other. And if we confuse them and don't get them in their right relationship, we will destroy the power to love. Even while we think we are making love more central. I think if you don't come at love this way, your failures will probably overwhelm you with the guilt of hopelessness. And if you feel hopelessness in your guilt, you have two choices in front of you. Hard-working legalism and careless, give-it-up immorality. And those are not helpful choices. And so I hope that you will see what I'm saying. That's a summary of the goal, and now we, we want to go there. So we're starting where we left off last time. First John 5, 3 and 4. First John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And the reason we're going here is because here, very clearly, we see how the new birth, faith in Christ... Love for people relate to each other. And seeing that will make all the difference. Whether you see it for yourself especially makes a difference. Don't be a second-hander. Make me show it to you. Because if you take my word for it, you'll be a second-hander. You'll always be dealing with God through me. You've got to deal directly with God through His Word. Then confidence rises and assurance goes deep and communion becomes authentic. So it's my job to show these things to you and your job by the Spirit to see them for yourselves, which is why I pray for your attentiveness in these services and not just some summary statement sticking in your head that I used. Verse 3 of 1 John 5 says, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now, some people equate loving God with keeping His commandments. They see a text like this. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And they say, equivalent. Same. Identical. This is this. Period. Or they'll quote John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. Only that text doesn't work so well because they're distinguished there manifestly. If you love me, that's one thing. You will keep my commandments. That's another thing. This has to happen so this can happen. This expresses that, but this isn't that merely. Which is why John, here in verse 3, adds, And his commandments are not burdensome. 
So loving God doesn't mean merely do the stuff. Do the stuff. Do the, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, etc. And you're loving Him. You may not like Him. May not trust Him. He may not be your treasure and your thrill. You're just doing the stuff. That's not what love of God is. Which is why He adds, and His commandments are not burdensome, which I take to mean, see for yourself, loving God means having a heart that doesn't find the commandments of God burdensome. See for yourself. Loving God means having a heart. How are you doing? Having a heart that does not find the command to love and all the other commands that are relevant Burdensome. Now, if the commandments aren't burdensome, what are they? Well, they're a delight. That's what the Psalms say over and over again. So I'll read you four examples. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And we Christians have had the law written on our hearts. And so that's what it means to have the law written on your heart. It's not anymore oppressing you from outside on stone. It's rising up inside from your heart. So it means to have the law written on your heart. Or Psalm 19, verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Psalm 119, verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. The path of your commandments. Psalm 119, 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The opposite of experiencing the commandments of God as burdensome is to experience them as your deepest longing, your deepest delight. And that's what the new birth does. Now, we're working our way Remember last time through three links in the chain of thought in verses 3 and 4? That was link number one. But this time, in this service, I want to push on this just a little farther and ask, which commandments? What's he got in mind specifically? Anything? When he says, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and don't find them burdensome, which commandments? What, what, what specifically might be at the front of His mind that might help us get a handle on this? I don't think it's hard to answer that question if you just read the flow of the thoughts starting back in 420. That's just two verses prior to the chapter 5. Start at 420. 1 John 4.20 says... If anyone says, I love God, I hope you say that, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not 
love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. So we know what's on the front burner of this man's mind when he writes, if you love God, you keep his commandments. It's the commandment to love each other. That's the main commandment. In fact, we're going to see before we're done, that's the summary of all the, com- all the other commandments in this book and in the Bible. So when he says, if you love God, you keep his commandments, he means first, if you love God, you love other people, especially believers. So now we have in the first link of the chain, not just a vague statement about loving God yields obedience. We have a statement much more precise, and this is what I wanted. We have a statement Loving God yields loving people. That's what we have in the first part of verse 3. Now, he keeps on going. Verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So you see the connection he's continuing? Just confirming that this is on his front burner. Verse 2, second half of the verse. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now that's odd. He switched it around on us. Kind of surprised me anyway. He's going along saying that loving God means loving people. And now he says, by this we know that we love people. We love children of God, Christians, when we love God and obey his commandments. What? Why does he do that? Why does he say, not just, you know you're loving God when you love people, but he also says, you know you're loving people when you love God. Seems like a circle. Where are we going to jump in here? I'll tell you why I think he did it. You decide. This is your Bible. I think John added verse 2 like that to guard us against sentimental reinterpretations of what love is. Nobody is going to say, I don't think we should love other people. Nobody is going to say that. But they may mean something very sentimental by it. No grounding in reality. Not doing anybody any ultimate good. Just doing what they think love is. And John wants to guard against that. And so he says, By this we know that we love the children of God, not when we do any old thing we feel like toward them, but when we love God. You can't help anybody if you don't love God. Well, if you believe that. Well, of course you don't believe that. You can feed them if you don't love God. You can clothe them if you don't love God. You can give a roof over their heads if you don't love God. You can help them get assimilated as a refugee if, they, if you don't love God. Of course you can do good to people if you don't love God. You can just make them totally comfortable on their way to hell. 
God is not impressed with that kind of love. Just doing stuff for people, distracting them from their totally big need. Never angling all those food and clothing and shelter and help that they might wake up to what they need. Not caring about that. Just doing what you think love is. This verse is in there to keep us from doing that. Because one of the commands of God that validate whether you're loving people is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And if you're not helping people do that, you're not loving them. You can call it what you like, but biblically speaking, you're not loving them. If you're not using all the practical helps, which almost certainly should be done, with a view to awakening their heart to see God as their treasure and their Savior, you're not loving them. I've been in so many arguments about this with people. I believe in hell. In heaven. And that the highest joy in the world is knowing God, not having your belly full. So, there's no help ultimately being given if we don't love God. So now we have our answer. Uh, the commandments referred to in verse 3 are mainly loving people and loving them toward God. For this, let's read the verse again. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, which I'm now interpreting to mean chiefly loving people. He commands us to love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Love Christians especially because they're born of God. And these commandments to love are not burdensome. So now, now we can paraphrase it. This is the love of God. This is how you know you love God. If your deepest longing is to love people toward God. That's verse 3. And it's not burdensome. Now, link number 2 in the chain of these two verses First part of verse 4, because, or for, which is going to be an important word, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So what's he doing in the first part of verse 4? He's giving the reason why born-again people or lovers of God do not find loving people burdensome. And the reason he gives is, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. So, if you look for an explanation, how come, how come it is that when we love God, we find it not burdensome to love other people? How come? And he says, because... Everybody who's been born again conquers the world. So what's that mean? You have to ask a question at that point. What is it about the world that would get in the way of me loving people? Because he just said, the reason you don't have a, a burden in loving other people is that 
You've conquered the world. The new birth caused you to conquer the world, and that's why it's not burdensome for you to love other people. So what is it about the world that has to be conquered that got in the way of me loving people with freedom and joy? And there's no doubt in this epistle what the answer to that is. Turn to chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's not talking about people there. You'll see what he's talking about in just two seconds. For all that is in the world, and he mentions three things, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now we know at least three of the forces in the world that have to be conquered, have to be overcome. Chapter 5, verse 4 says, The reason loving people is not burdensome is that those who have been born again overcome the world. And now we see here, what in the world needs to be overcome? And the answer is the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and pride in possessions. Now, just step back from those three and just try to see a pattern there. There, there are several patterns there. I'm only going to give you one. It's just divide them in half. If you don't have something you really want, you crave it. You desire. Now, that's the first two. Desire of eyes, desire of flesh. There's something out there I don't have. I really want it. It has a very high place in my affectional ranking, and I crave it. And the other one is, I already have it. And I'm really proud of having it. You see how the world works? Mingled with my sinful, unregenerate heart. The world is very powerful, and it can kill me in two ways. It can withhold itself from me, or it can give itself to me. Either way, I'm dead if I don't have a regenerate heart. If it holds itself back from me, I want it, I want it so bad, it's all I think about. I angle all my behaviors to get there. Jesus calls it serving money. Man cannot serve two masters. You're serving it in the sense that you're calculating all of your mind, all of your strategies, all of your energy. Think about it, go there, do that, get that. That's your God. And if it came to you, you're rich, you're not poor. You talk about your portfolio, you talk about your cars, you talk about your house, you talk about your computers, you talk, 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 talk about the stuff you have and never about Christ. Because you know who your God is. It's the stuff you have. And you're really glad you've got it. So either way, that's the pattern I see. Either way, the unregenerate heart is an idol factory and it is idolatrous for what it doesn't have and it's idolatrous for what it does have. Pride in this, craving for this. That's what's got to be conquered. And chapter 5, verse 4 says, For 
Everyone born of God conquers that. That's what the new birth does. That's what the new birth does. So what's the solution? How, how does the new birth do that? That's link number three. So link number one is loving God means loving people without a sense of, oh, I hate loving people. I wish I didn't have to love people. It's so burdensome to love people. I just would like to do something else beside loving people. That's not the way the newborn person talks. Rather, it is not burdensome to do this. That's link one. Link two is, how does that happen? The answer is, everyone born of God has overcome the world which creates desires and pride that keep you from loving people. You know, you know, just, just look at your experience that if you're consumed with craving for stuff, you're not loving people. You would just as soon get to the stuff. You're on your way to Best Buy to get the stuff. And here's a needy person and there's nothing in your heart going to that needy person. It's on the new computer. That's the stuff that you're so craving to have. Or you've got it now and you just want to get home and show that it's the latest for a month. And so you'll ignore them that way, too. Don't have it. Have it doesn't matter. They don't count. The stuff counts. That's what's got to be broken. And it gets broken through the new birth. Verse 4a, first half of verse 4, says, Now, my question is, and John's, I'm just following him, asking him questions that I know he's answering. How's that work? How does the new birth do that? That's real important for you to know. And that's the last part of verse 4. And he just said, everyone born of God conquers, gets victory, overcomes the world. And then he adds, and this is the victory. Here's how it happens. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Faith overcomes the world. Faith is of such a nature that the root of cravings severed. Faith is of such a nature that the root of pride is severed. So you got to ask, what's faith that it does that? Because a lot of you have a really, really mechanical notion of faith. Like, believe a fact here or there. <laughs> I'll tell you, in the Bible, faith is powerful, alive, massively significant and influential in life. It is not a little sentence that you sign off on or affirm from a doctrinal statement alone. It is so powerful. It is the victory that overcomes these incredible forces surrounding us in this 21st century world. How does it work? The most immediate effect of the new birth is that life is created in a dead heart. Spiritually, we were spiritually dead, 
We love stuff. We didn't love God. We love stuff. We didn't love people. We were dead. We were completely circulating in, in the sphere of this world and operating according to its desires. And then the new birth comes on the wings of the gospel and the spirit, and it touches, remember, and life happens. And the first mark of this life in the heart is it sees the world differently. It, it was blind. You can say it was dead, or you can say it was blind. And you can say a lot of other things about it, but let's just say dead and blind. And when the life is given, sight is given. And the cross looks different, sin looks different, the brooch looks different, everything looks different, and immediately, with no lapse of time, the born-again heart receives Christ. You don't, you don't in new birth see Him as supremely valuable and say, let me think about it a minute. Hmm. You don't do that. You don't, that's not what the new birth does. That's what some views, I'm not going to name them, some views say the new birth does. The new birth awakens you to see him as irresistibly true and compelling and beautiful and desirable and valuable so that he becomes by your receiving your treasure. That's what the new birth awakens, and that is faith. Faith is the immediate effect, no lapse, of the sight of Christ as true and beautiful and valuable, crucified, risen for me, and bringing me everything of God that I need, and thus faith is a welcoming or receiving act. It sees and receives instantly. That's what faith does, and that's what's created by the new birth. Faith thus conquers the desire of the eyes and the desire of the flesh. You are no longer in bondage. It is broken. It is decisively severed. The root is severed. The branch that went up from the root may have a little bit of life left before the berries of lust drop off. But the root is severed. We'll come back to that next time. That's what happens in the new birth. That's why the new birth yields faith and love for people. So now I'm not consumed with stuff anymore. It's just there. Of course, I need it. Got to have a house or an apartment. I got to have some food. Got to have a transportation probably in this culture. Maybe not, but most do. And... And some clothes to get along. Not many. Don't need many. And, and a few things. If I have food and shelter, Paul said, with these who will be content. Woe to those who desire to be rich in this life. They pierce themselves with many pangs and bring themselves to destruction. It's hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. We will be content now. These cravings are broken. They don't rule us anymore. This pride and the stuff that we have, you know, this kind of stuff, we still talk about it much. Don't think about it much. It's just necessary. Just there. And we choose it according to what will make much of our great king. 
How can I glorify God with my clothes and glorify God with my car and glorify God with my house and glorify God with my stuff? It'll change everything in your life. If you ask that question, if you don't need it anymore, but you're going to use it for the glory of your king, alters your lifestyle at every point. Now, we're in a position, I think, to ask our original question. How does new birth, faith, and loving people relate to each other? Regeneration comes first, causally, and brings about faith. That's in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So, the evidence that you're born of God is, first, you're a believer. You've received Him for who He is. And then second, loving people is the fruit of this faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, that keeps us from loving people. Our faith. Our faith overcomes the world, that keeps us from loving people. And so we've got new birth, faith, loving people. And, and my burden in this message is these second two and how they relate. L- faith in Jesus, described as I just did, and loving people. That is immensely important to keep distinct, not separate, distinct. They're not the same. Faith in Jesus and loving people are not the same. It's important. There are people today who are confusing the two intentionally. They say things like, well, there's no real difference between the word faith and faithfulness. And faithfulness surely to God includes loving people. So faith and loving people are one thing. I regard that as deadly. Deadly to your salvation and deadly to love. All the while thinking you're making love more significant by putting it right at the bottom. You're killing it. Now, I said not separated. Faith and love are never separated, but they are distinct. I'll show you. Turn with me to 1 John three twenty-three for the big sweeping statement in John's mind about the inseparability of love and faith, loving people and trusting Jesus. 1 John three twenty-three. This is his commandment. Now, what's crucial there is to see the singular This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and, secondly, love one another just as he has commanded us. So if you want one summary statement for this book, it would be the command of God is believe Jesus and love people, especially Christians. But I'm arguing distinguishing them, not equating them, not identifying them is of the utmost importance. 
Why? Why? Let's, let's argue this way. You, the day's going to come in your life, believe it or not, when you fail to love somebody the way you should. As a Christian, a born-again Christian. And the day will come when you will not love somebody the way you should. What you going to do in view of 1 John? That love, loving people is the evidence of the new birth. How are you going to reassure your heart when it condemns you? Which it will. 1 John says it will. In another text. Well, I'll tell you how I do it and show you why I do it that way and then you'll see, I hope, why keeping love and faith distinct is of utmost importance. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, If anyone does sin, that is, fails to love another person the way we ought. If anyone fails to love another person the way we ought, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John assumes Christians sin. In fact, he calls you a liar if you say that's not true. Chapter 1, verse 8. He assumes Christians sin. That is, they fail to love others the way they should. And here, he says, when that happens, you may be sure of one thing, born-again Christian. You got an advocate before God. And he is righteous. You're not. And everything hangs on why you think He's your advocate. Is it because you've been loving people pretty good? Is that the bottom of your hope? Been loving people pretty good, so that's the ground of my union with this advocate? He's my advocate because I'm a pretty good lover. If that's where you go, conflating love and faith, you will be undone or your grandchildren will be. Don't go there. The answer is that we have an advocate because we trust him. Faith is the way we are united with Christ. He's never failed in loving. You failed every day, perhaps. And he's never failed in loving people the way we should have. And we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the, the righteous one, the perfect one, the loving one. The reason this works for us, this advocacy, is because the definition of faith is, as I tried to make plain, a receiving of Christ, and, faith, and love isn't that. 
And this may be the nub of the matter. Are you, are you listening? The nub of the matter is the meaning of faith is that eyes go open, Christ becomes beautiful as our righteousness, our punishment, our treasure, our King, our Lord, and the immediate, no lapse of time response is, receive. Mine, I take you. You offer yourself, I take you. That's the act by which we are united to Him and He becomes our everything. Love is a going out to people. Faith is a receiving of Christ in. Faith is a a welcoming of all that God is for us in Christ. Love is a going out to people from that fullness, from that standing. If you get these things conflated, you'll be undone before God. We have to believe in faith alone as the way we're united to Christ. That's the meaning of faith. It's the receiving act of the soul. All the other acts are are fruit of faith. All the other acts are streams flowing out from the fountain that came in. And if we confuse the stream with the fountain, we will have a crisis of faith and a crisis of conscience and either be hard-working legalists or dissolute, give it up, nihilistic, immoral people. The third way is walk in the light. And stop denying that you sin and stop sinning. So, my standing with God as a pastor does not go up and down and in and out with my stumbling and my failures to love you as I ought. It doesn't go up and down or in and out. My perfect advocate says this. Imagine him saying this for you, because he will. He does if you're born again. He says to his father, because it says we have an advocate with the father. Got to put a parenthesis in here. I got this on the bridge on the way over. Don't ever buy the statement, if you've got a father, you don't need an advocate. You only need an advocate if you have a judge. Okay? That reasoning is not from the Bible. It's from the head of a person. Close that parenthesis. You need an advocate with your father. My father... God, my advocate, Jesus. So Jesus says to the Father, Father, for my sake, look with favor on your imperfect servant, John Piper. For my sake, look with favor on him. For the sake of my perfect love, look with favor on his failure. And say that quite right, did I? Look with favor on him in his imperfect love. Maybe that's the better way to say it. For my perfect love, look with favor on him in his imperfect love. Father, you know all things. You know that in his heart, he's banking on me. He's trusting me. You know. 
He's confused right now and he's slipping. You know, therefore, I'm his and my perfect love counts as his. God sees me in Christ. I couldn't survive if I didn't believe that. I could not stay in the ministry. I could not stay a Christian. I could not handle the imperfection of my own soul, especially the love peace. So what do I do? I confess my failure, First John 1, 9. I embrace forgiveness that he bought. I take my stand in the wrath-removing propitiation that he procured for me. And I reassure my heart, chapter 3, verse 19, that God knows everything and he sees my advocate, the righteous one. And for Christ's sake, he owns me. He owns me. So I end where I started. I wanted you to see for yourself that our ability to love people imperfectly is rooted in our already loving them perfectly in Christ. In Christ, God sees you as Christ. You're not yet perfect, but he sees your advocate who is the righteous one when you're connected with Him, He's advocating for you. He's standing in for you. He is for you all that you need. And you bank on that. And you bank on it by faith. Because if you say, I have that standing on the ground of love, you destroy love and your soul. I hope you get it. Your life hangs on it. Christianity is a glorious thing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that at the North Campus and the South Campus and in this room, everybody would see for themselves in the Word what it is to be born again, give a new life that can see, what it is to have faith, to receive Christ as our all, our righteousness, our punishment, our Lord, our Savior, our treasure, to receive, receive, empty-handed, just helpless we receive, and what it is to go out to others in the freedom of this, in the power of this, to go out to others imperfectly in this life, to love them. Oh, give our church strong, clear faith. And may we love each other as we've never loved before. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.